Welcome to the Ogletree Deacons Podcast, a brief discussion of compelling legal issues and practical insights. Please note that the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor should it be construed as legal advice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. Please enjoy the program. Welcome, everybody, back to another episode of Dirty Steel Toe Boots, a podcast by the law firm of Ogletree Deacons for employers and those in their legal, safety, and HR departments who need to better understand OSHA as an agency and the law that governs it. I'm your host, Philip Russell. I'm a shareholder in the Tampa office of the firm. I have a national practice in which I have handled around 200 fatality OSHA cases and hundreds of other kinds. We have one of the largest workplace safety and health practice groups in the country. We cover all 50 states with extensive experience with federal OSHA and state OSHA plans. Our approach is simple, but perhaps not easy. We help clients avoid or minimize OSHA citations and improve safety. This podcast is about education, not about legal advice for specific circumstances. As an employer, it is important for you to know what you can and cannot do, but also what OSHA can and cannot do. You can't hope to hold the agency accountable to the law if you don't know something about the law yourself. So welcome back to the podcast with my friend and colleague, Deanna Hayes. We are actually at the ASSP conference, the American Society of Safety Professionals, 2023 in San Antonio, Texas, where we just presented our session. Our session was on the multi-employer citation policy and how what it is and how OSHA uses it for enforcement. So Deanna, welcome back. Uh, thank you so much, Philip. Thank you for having me on the podcast, and thank you to everyone for joining us. So it, we had a really packed room yesterday, frankly. We had over 200 people and uh, some standing room only in the back, so uh, quite the quite the interest in the topic, don't you think? Absolutely. I was excited to see it, and we also got great participation as well, a lot of questions being asked and comments being shared. Well, one of the first things we talked about was what is an OSHA citation and what does it mean and who decides whether OSHA got it right and made sure and reminded everyone in good discussion that there is some another agency, not OSHA, uh, but it's the Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission that reviews contested citations. And that agency, despite the similar name, is not part of OSHA. It is an independent, it's not even part of the Department of Labor. It's an independent agency all to itself. They decide whether OSHA got it right. And many times, and this is an area in which we've seen all too often, OSHA has gotten it wrong, mm-hmm. where they don't actually go through what is required under the multi-employer citation policy to cite a particular employer under certain circumstances. And that's what our session really was all about, is trying to help everyone understand better, well, what does that policy say and what is the law? Mm-hmm. But hey, we're calling it a policy, but is it really a policy or is it really the law? Well, it is a policy and it is also the current law of the land because courts have upheld OSHA's policy. So right now it is something that employers need to know about and follow if you have multiple employers in the same job site. And this is important. Why? I mean, we talked about that too. What was the context in which we shared with our audience about why this is such an important subject right now? I mean, it's we talked about increases in construction, certainly, Mm -hmm. but this isn't just for construction sites, right? It's not. It can happen in any industry. And with the use of contractors in a greater context and also the greater use of temporary employees, which is a separate issue but related, we're seeing more and more employers have to do this across all industries. So it may be in manufacturing. It may even be in healthcare. 
It may be in oil and gas or retail. It can come up in any industries. And we're seeing this more and more too, as companies are being short staffed, you might have a contractor that's asked to help out and do something that they otherwise would not on a job. So let's talk about it. The, the, the multi-employer citation policy, well, as simply as that. And, and by the way, folks, if you want to know where it is, just go into Google and type OSHA multi-employer citation policy. You'll find it and read it. I, I encourage everyone to read through it. It is not your typical law, rule or regulation from a government agency. They actually have some scenarios and examples to work through that are that, that really do tell you what OSHA thinks about the various kinds of employers that it identifies. And there are four, three that we see all the time and mm -hmm. one unicorn that we've never seen. <laughs> uh, so, so why don't we, in fact, let's, uh, let, let's start with the easiest one for folks to understand, and that's the creating employer. So what is that? So the creating employer is exactly what it sounds like. It's the employer that creates a hazard. So does it matter who, what workers are exposed? It does not. It, it does not, as long as you are the employer who created the hazard, you could be cited even if your employees are not exposed to that hazard. Okay, so it doesn't matter whether, when that's often a question, we'll talk about this with the other types. So there's a question as to who was exposed. With a creating employer, a creating employer, any employer who actually causes the hazard that then exposes workers, anybody's workers, it doesn't matter, right? That's right. And just to give you an example, and this is an example that comes from OSHA's policy, their example is there's a servicing contractor who is servicing machinery at a host site. The host fails to cover chemical drums, which causes the servicing contractor's employees to be exposed to an air contaminant above the permissible limits. And in this example, the servicing contractor goes to the host, says, hey, we want you to fix this issue, and they do not. Okay. At that point, what does OSHA consider when it comes to the creating employer? And again, this analysis is usually fairly simple, but step one, and there's always, there are these two steps to all of these. And where we find, not so much with this one, but with certainly when we get to controlling employer and the exposing employer, step twos are missed quite a bit. Mm -hmm. But here there's two steps. Step number one, the host employer is a creating employer because it caused exposure, right? Right. Step two. The creating employer, could it have done something about it? Which, if it caused it, usually it could have done something about it. That's why usually step two is not an issue with creating employer. Right. Absolutely. And here, the host could have done something really simple. It should, could have covered those drums up, right? So that's an easy fix. And that's something that OSHA is likely to consider and could cite the employer, even if the servicing contractor, in our example, had not alerted the host employer of the hazard. Okay, let's talk about the second one, the exposing employer. This is an employer whose own employees are exposed to a hazard, hazard knowingly, by the way. Mm -hmm. Critical thing there, the employer has to know that its employees are being exposed, or they should have known, mm -hmm. maybe some constructive knowledge. But this is not the employer that created the hazard. Correct. Correct. So the knowledge is going to be the key first element there. And the term of art is the exposing employer would have to exercise reasonable diligence to discover the violation, right? So what that means to me is if I'm a subcontractor and I'm sending my employees to work out on a, a job site or at a facility, then I need to at least make some basic inquiries regarding what the work conditions are going to be and if there is some kind of safety plan. Yeah. And then, of course, 
what did they do about it? Exactly. So the exposing employer then, once you are aware of a hazard, has to take steps consistent with its authority to protect its employees. So if they don't control the work site, the first step, of course, would be to alert the controlling employer that there is a hazard and ask them to remedy that. Okay, so there we have step one and step two, right? So step one is where do you fit within the where do you fit within the status? That really is not, but that that can't be it. You can't stop there. Just because you are an employer, you have employees on a job site or in a facility, they're exposed to a hazard. Number one, did you know about it? Mm -hmm. Okay, but if you did, then the next step is not you. You are not automatically liable at that point under the policy. Step two is that reasonable care piece. What did you do about it consistent, as the, the policy says, consistent with your authority? Mm -hmm. So maybe you're a subcontractor. You're not the general contractor. You're not the controlling employer. That's next. But maybe there's a limit to what you can do. There's a limit to what authority you may have. Absolutely. And if you do make that request and the controlling employer does not address the hazard, then you certainly want to think about documenting that request if you haven't already done so. So if there's an issue later on, you can show OSHA that you requested that it be fixed, but if it's a if it's a serious hazard, you may even have to consider not bringing your employees out to that job site until it's corrected. If you can do that under the contract, certainly, mm -hmm. and address it, you should, because and the uh, the results don't matter so much here. It's the effort. Mm -hmm. I mean, yes, the results matter. We would prefer. We you certainly would want the creating employer to be alerted to stop creating the hazard or the general contractor, maybe the controlling employer to stop someone else from creating the hazard. You want that to happen. Mm -hmm. But if you as the exposing employer have that knowledge, your reasonable care necessarily needs to involve effort, even if unsuccessful. Absolutely. And you also mentioned, Philip, the contract. I think that's a great call out. So if you are a subcontractor that's going to be sending employees out to work at another job site or facility, Take a look at that contract and see what parameters you might have to address a safety issue if one arises. Let's move on to the next one. Actually, let's pause for a moment and see if we can find the unicorn. <laughs> I mentioned earlier there is a unicorn. What is the unicorn? It is the correcting employer. Now, why do we say unicorn? <laughs> we say unicorn because although this is part of the multi-employer citation policy, we do not really see it being addressed. You know, we haven't, in our exceptions, had OSHA uh, call out that there's a correcting employer. It just doesn't seem to come up. And when you look for citations against the correcting employer, there aren't many to be found. Well, what, what is the correcting <laughs> employer, at least by policy? What does it say it is? So according to OSHA, the correcting employer is the employer who is engaged in a common undertaking on the same work site as the exposing employer and is responsible for correcting a hazard. So OSHA says this usually occurs where an employer is given the responsibility of installing or maintaining particular safety and health equipment. And if you are the correcting employer, you have to exercise reasonable care, there's that phrase again, in preventing and discovering violations and meet any obligations of correcting the hazard. Yeah, you know, I what I thought was very interesting is anecdotally, purely anecdotally, yeah. this is not a scientific survey, but within our practice group, even in the firm, I don't know that we have any of our colleagues who've ever seen the unicorn. Mm -hmm. and we like to ask that occasionally, and I know I haven't after hundreds of cases. I know you haven't, same number. Um, but it was interesting because we had no names here, but we had somebody <laughs> from somebody from uh, from a, the Federal Occupational Safety and Health Administration in the audience. And 
no recognition there either. Never seen the unicorn. Mm-hmm. So I think it's not something that we see often, but it's there. It is part of it. So now let's get back to uh, get out of fantasy land and quit looking for unicorns and get to the big one to, to talk about today. And the one we spent a lot of time on during our session is the controlling employer. So that's usually where you will find the general contractor on a construction site. Uh, think of it that way, or the host employer in a manufacturing facility or a healthcare facility. But that's whomever is in charge of the work site and can make changes, has the authority to uh, the power to correct safety and health violations itself or require others to do so. There's your, your base definition. Now, this is where I think that I've seen a lot of misses and misunderstandings uh, from OSHA in the field. And that is that there is a, a, a skip over step two. Because remember, there's always two steps with these. Step one is what's the status or the, the uh, type of employer. Step two is what's the standard. And we actually shared with our, uh, with our audience an example, which I'll get to in a moment. But when you look at the step two, OSHA skips it quite a bit. And they say, oh, you're the controlling employer, you're the general contractor. Therefore, you have to ensure the duty, ensure the safety of all workers on the job site. And that's just not the law. Mm -hmm. Now, that's not to say there's not some level of responsibility, but even OSHA's policy itself says this means that the controlling employer is not normally required to inspect for hazards at a frequency or to have the same level of knowledge of the uh, of the applicable standards of the trade expertise as the employer it has hired. The point there is that the re- duty of reasonable care is less what is required of an employer with respect to protecting its own employees. So I think that's the where that's where the real disconnect is, and that's right from what I just read is right from the policy itself. But oftentimes it seems that OSHA might go from oh you're the general contractor then you are now automatically liable for everyone's safety on the job site. That's not what the policy says. And it generated a whole lot of discussion during our session from attendees, and really it brought out that there are all types of varying levels of control when it comes to the controlling employer, right? Like you may have um, uh, an employer that hires an expert in a certain area to come out and, and do a job on at its facility or on its job site. And there, again, the controlling employer may have little involvement with what that expert subcontractor is doing. Contrast that with um, certain industries, really common, we found out in the oil and gas industry, where you have a quote-unquote company person that's on site directing the work of different contractors. And OSHA is going to look at that much differently than if you hired an expert to do a job at your job site. Well, let's talk about that example. So we shared with our attendees a, a actually a cut and paste right out of a citation that happened in the last few months with uh, with one of our clients. Who of course, didn't, didn't mention no names and redacted the identities, but it's a good illustration of how uh, OSHA got it wrong in a particular case and, and what we were able to get done. And what they did, OSHA cited the uh, the employer for a fall protection violation of 501 B13, nineteen twenty six. And it was all about, you know, some residential construction activities and residential construction employees not having fall protection. Well, those workers were employed by a subcontractor who was there to do some work. And the workers had gone up to the second level uh, and and outside balcony area on this two story construction site. And there was there were no railings up. 
But the general contractor had put up a sign inside the building that said, don't go up here. There's no fall protection or something to that effect. Well, what these workers did of the subcontractor is they didn't bother going inside and going up those stairs. They just got ladders off their trucks, put them up against the side of the building, climbed up to that unprotected edge and went to work. Well, somebody complained and OSHA shows up. Like within an hour, of course, right? Of course. <laughs> Murphy shows up. Here they are. Uh, OSHA shows up, sees what's going on. Now, the general contractor actually did have some supervision on site at the moment. They just weren't there at that particular uh, part of the job site. They're on another part of the job site. There had been some vandalism. And so they were doing an inspection there. Well, they come around, see that OSHA's there, have a conversation, take those guys down, get them off the, the uh, job site for that day. All that being said, what happened was OSHA fairly quickly, without much more inspection activities, issued a citation in which it said the general contractor, as a controlling employer, at least they cited the type of employer. We don't always see that. That's right. Back to it, failed to ensure that employees of the subcontractor were protected from fall hazards. Well, that's not the standard. That's not what's in the policy, right? That's right. It's they, reasonable care. Yeah, where's the reasonable care? What they should have written here was the general contractor as a controlling employer failed to exercise reasonable care to ensure that the subcontractor workers were protected from fall hazards. Big difference, right? Huge difference. And in fact, I believe you shared with the group that not only was that not reflected in the citation, it also wasn't reflected in the inspection either. That's right, because I don't think it's so much a matter of whether they wrote the citation correctly, but what it tells me when I look at the, the alleged violation description in the citation is where were, what were they thinking? What were they focused on? And what we were able to determine here is that, well, they cited the wrong standard because they conducted the wrong inspection. They immediately went to, oh, general contractor, you're a controlling employer, you're responsible for everybody on the job site. Not, not the way that it works. So. When you looked at the filing, when we had a conversation with OSHA about what was there, it turns out that the controlling employer exercised more than reasonable <laughs> care. They had an extensive record of job site inspections, safety training, safety briefings. They took action. They actually had this subcontractor had been kicked off the job or pulled off the job several times before. So they, they showed and demonstrated they did something about it when someone didn't follow what was required. And in addition to that, Philip, I think you also shared that this particular controlling employer vetted its subcontractors before it even started to do business with them, correct? That's right. And that's one of the part of the process is that this employer had a very robust subcontractor selection and supervision program. And that's something that, that certainly all employers ought to consider having. If you don't already have one, there's not really a specific standard. This is thou shalt have one. But it certainly seems to be a good best practice, which is what we also discussed, uh, is considering whether you want to have a very robust supervisor, sorry, subcontractor selection and supervisory program. So those were the various kinds of employers under the multi-employer citation policy. So hopefully that's helpful for folks to understand more about what employer, what type of employer are you? And then what is your duty? What is your responsibility under each of those types? But there was another category we talked about, too, and this gets outside the multi-employer citation policy, but a closely related subject, which is temporary employees. Let's talk about that. 
So temporary employees, to sum this up in a nutshell, OSHA has a temporary worker initiative, and there's a lot of good information on OSHA's website about what OSHA would look for in an inspection involving temporary workers. But to boil it down, if you are a host employer and you are directly supervising the work of temporary employees, OSHA is going to want to know what training you're providing those temporary employees. And do they get the same type of safety orientation and resources that your regular employees would get? And what does your contract say when it comes to safety obligations and also recording and reporting obligations to OSHA? So some similar themes to what we've talked about with the multi-employer citation policy to consider. Well, that's what we covered, folks. We had a really good session at ASSP 2023. We'll hope to see it at ASSP 2024 as well. But of course, don't forget the Ogletree Safety Sim Workplace Safety Symposium will be December 7th, 8th, and 9th. I think I got the dates right. Uh, in Austin, Texas this year. Last year, it was in our hometown of Tampa. Uh, we had a really great time, enjoyed uh, a lot of good attendees, around 200. So we'll sell that out again. So if you haven't registered, folks, please do so. Uh, you'll find the registration at Ogletree.com. But we're happy to have joined you today. Thanks for joining us. Hope you learned a little bit more about the multi-employer citation policy and how OSHA uses and might misuse it from time to time. So let's uh, do what we always do and try and hold the agency in check uh, or at least hold them accountable to the law. Deanna, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me on. See you next time on another episode of Dirty Steel Toe Boots, folks. Thank you for joining us on the Ogletree Deacons podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. And remember, the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice.